0: Welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh, heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts.
1: And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts.
0: You know, we talk so much about uh, the mental process, about the process that happens in the mind, uh, but the body is a huge component of that. And I feel like we, I I wouldn't go so far as to say I don't feel like we talk about the body enough, but let's have a conversation about the body and how that plays both into our well-being, Uh, But also, you know, how we see the world, and uh, I mean, it has a real role. You were telling me about a book that you were reading called...
1: Yeah, it's called um, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. It's by this uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, is his name, Um, and he's done all this research on trauma, and... It's just as the book describes it—that our body keeps the score of trauma in our life, and how it's so our body's reaction and the nervous system is so connected to what starts to then um, influence our mind. Um, And yeah, the thing—it's—it's that's the whole PTSD um, component, you know. That uh, what what we found is that. When you have trauma, particular trauma, say a bad car accident, um, from that point on, that level of trauma can be experienced just by imagining it. Um, and we don't just mean experienced by the fear, but all the chemical reaction in the right. body starts to be activated, just as if it were happening.
0: Yeah, that that so the 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 cool, the very interesting maybe intersection of. I mean, I think I was certainly in the camp and I'm sure I'm not alone where people imagine that the mind is first. Uh, And, you know, even the mind in and of itself is like hard to describe, right? It's a very clear idea of what the brain is. But what the mind is, is, you know, I I think less clear. And there are loads of definitions of how people define the mind. uh, Whereas the brain is like, we can all agree on. Uh, But I, I was certainly in the camp where this idea of the mind happens first, and then, or maybe the brain happens first, and then you experience some physiology after whatever has happened mm-hmm. in your brain. Mm-hmm. But it looks it looks as if like one that's not really the case. But there's an interplay between yeah. the you know the brain and the mind and the body, such that the body holds a real amount of the information.
1: Yeah,
0: and you know I, I don't know if decision is the word, but. Like, it, it's in there. It's yes. part of a thing.
1: Yeah. It's, um, I don't know if this is the correct term, but it, it gets coded in, in our body. It becomes a part of, you know, our body is, if we think, you know, in terms of what our body does is saves us from danger. Um, you know, if we're able to run away or hide, um, that's all there. So we have a fight flight or freeze response that our body becomes activated along those lines at any point if need be so you can imagine you know all the things that are being released in our body to get us to the point of safety um and that's that's a real thing you know i've had clients who You know this is the frustration the rational mind says but I don't need to be be scared of whatever this even an emotional process I don't need to be scared right now emotionally I'm fine but what they're noting and what you can note, what anybody can note is my heart is pounding my palms are sweaty I'm shaking even if I know all the things that call me to safety my body is still responding as if I'm in danger
0: yeah, it's so easy to... So, you know, when we abstract things and sort of talk about the mind or we're just talking about emotions, like fear or whatever whatever the emotion is, love, uh, It's it, one, I think it's easy enough to ignore the physiology. But even if you sort of bring the physiology into it, you know, the biochemistry is happening in the background of that. And, you know, without... The, even when I hear, like, psychologists talk, you hear about intention, you hear about this designed to do this... But you don't really hear about them talking about the biochemistry as much, you know. Uh, some of the the, the, the main neurotransmitters, uh, serotonin, melatonin, uh, oxytocin, uh, you know, I guess epinephrine, norepinephrine, and, um, and dopamine. Uh, but, you know, past that, you, you, I feel like there's not nearly as much mention uh, of the biochemistry. And that's until it was an important time that I remember I was talking to a friend. Uh, who is an intellectual powerhouse guy, you know, high IQ, and, and is able to develop all of these frameworks and and shift between paradigms in terms of how he sees the world, right? Brilliant mind. Also, a little depressive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and the reason that, that uh, you know, I remember I was at his house once, and um, I, I was telling him, I said, like, hey, you should probably get outside. Right? You've been in the house for a long time. <laughs> you might want to get out. Um, and, and he made this really cool intellectual argument about the core assumptions of people who are socialized in a particular kind of way. And so, you know, I'll do a, a pseudo version of the sort of intellectualizing that happened. But he's like, if you look at the, the expected utility uh, of most people and uh, the value that they hope to derive by being outdoors... Uh, what they do is generalize in ways that, you know, uh, without a real data set to see how many people actually derive this benefit from being outdoors versus how many people don't. And because they benefit from it, because it's a preference for them, they generalize and say it's a preference for all people. So he he's talking about the set of people saying, hey, you should get out. Right. right? right. He's essentially trying to... Um, He's essentially telling me, mind your business, right. because I got it, right? Uh, but in this very sort of intellectual, he's showing me the error of my thinking.
1: Right.
0: And he wasn't wrong. There, there was, you know, I mean, there, there was an error in my thinking, in my overgeneralization, saying, hey, you should probably get out. Hmm. He was pointing that out to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then went on to explain about his set of preferences, uh, and then it basically it boiled down to, that's not what I want to do. And that's not important to me. Mm. But there was another blind spot that he had. And it wasn't an intellectual blind spot. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe it is in a particular kind of way, but it wasn't a thought blind spot. It was you can't measure with your mind the actual chemical reaction that happens when you're in the sun. As diurnal creatures, right, as humans... Uh, But there's also a chemical reaction that happens when you're outside. Mm -hmm. And no matter how good you are at thinking, no matter how smart you are, um, you can't really uh, account for, through biases, you can't account for the biochemistry of being outside, how that affects your emotions, how that affects, you know, other systems that are happening in your body. That's not something that you can be aware of at the cognitive level, right? right? Right. Um, And so... It turns out that, you know, sometimes if you can just get people to do some of the biochemical stuff to their body, that, like, things start to change, and then all of a sudden you feel better, and it's like, oh, right, you didn't see this coming, because you were thinking just about the the mind aspect, mm-hmm. and not about the physiology, and not about the biochemistry, but, like, all of those things are part of how we experience the world, whether we're aware of them or not.
1: Yeah. It's, um, yeah, that's a that's an interesting story. I mean somebody like rationalizing why they don't go outside by data research that's I, mean, I guess that's, that's that's the friends that you uh, that you hang out with um, but yeah I think we often it, we do a um, we split it down the middle we're either thinking and not everybody but I think we tend to generalize, either taking care of ourselves physically as separate from taking care of ourselves mentally. Mm. So we'll go to therapy for our mind. We'll go to the gym for our body, which is all good. But the the interplay between the two of them is, is so, so strong. Um, and they one kind of bounces off of the other. I don't know if it's a chicken and egg thing. You were mentioning the other day, you said it's, it's interesting how much more disciplined you get in general Mm. when you're eating well. Right. Like when you start to feel your body doing something different, then your brain starts to say, maybe we're doing something here. Maybe structure is what I need.
0: Yeah, I I don't know why that. I mean, so the the way that I got on my my radar, Jim Rohn, who will always have like this indelible uh, impact on my life, for those of you who don't know who Jim Rohn is, Jim Rohn was like, a, I, just, I don't know, a business philosopher sort of type. Uh, he was a speaker on the circuit, uh, I think, from the nineteen late 1960s to 1980s or maybe the 70s to the 80s. He's now dead, um, but he has a YouTube legacy that is still changing lives. Hmm. Uh, and thank you to the uploaders. Um, but, um, you know, Jim Rohn was, was a big part of... You know, me trying to get squared away when I was when I first, you know, kind of broke from 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 the main path. Yeah, but he says, um, you know, every every discipline sharpens the next. Right? Mm-hmm. Every discipline that you, you know, engage in it, it strengthens your ability to take on more discipline and every lack of discipline, every weakness. Right. It lowers your threshold for for, for sticking to the thing that you need to stick to. Uh, and I don't know why that is. Like, I have, I have no idea. Uh, I, I don't know the science, but I, I certainly find it to be true in my life. If I'm eating like a mad person, uh, but then I start running, all the foods that I don't want to be eating, they just fall away. Like, I don't mm-hmm. have to try anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they just fall away. You know, now that I've been eating a certain kind of way, the desire to run has, uh, I mean, you know, I have a bum knee now, but the desire to run is like welling up in me. But also, my, my alcohol consumption just went down to, I mean, essentially zero, not because I wanted to give it up, but it's just like my body doesn't want it anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know whether that's happening at the mental level or at the biochemistry level or the physiological level, uh, but these things all play together in a way. The discipline is certainly happening at the mental level. Mm-hmm. And 2020 has been a year of discipline for me, I would say. Um, but then the other things that you know I normally have to weigh, alcohol or a certain kind of food, um, they're not even a struggle anymore. It's just like, Oh, I'm not doing that.
1: Yeah, and I think that is, you know, and I don't know, you know, physical, biochemical but I do think there's an interplay, you know, even as you start to eat better, you start to physically feel better. Which then, you know, your mind is now kind of geared towards what it means to continue this path of feeling better, or doing better. Um, you get a little taste of it. And I think, you know, it the 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 way that the body responds is also a, kind of informing the mind or vice versa. I don't know. I mean I'm sure there's a scientist that could, you know, point us in the right direction. But it is a thing. Um and, you know, our our bodies, like even when we were talking about the fight or flight or freeze response, now there there are three. Um, you know, that gets really activated when we're in these moments of, of feeling threatened. Um, I I've throughout my life I've uh I've a, a and a singer like I sing and I um when I first started singing publicly when I was young it was terrifying for me I was just so had so much stage fright and um I couldn't get past getting up there and not being able to sing because I didn't have breath I mean in order to sing you have to have like p- control of your breathing because you have to hold notes I didn't know this I was too young and I didn't quite get it I was like in high school um and I just stumbled upon one day what it was like to start to control my breathing and I was pretty young. I was like in my 20s I was probably you know early on gonna sing at somebody something and I started slowing down my breathing which then I noted then that I was starting to feel less shaky because my breathing slowed and which you know I guess affected my heart rate and um it was from that moment on that I learned that if I get nervous, if I was going to get nervous performing, that if I controlled my breathing, I'd be okay. This wasn't like me understanding science. This was me stumbling mm. onto something that started to change the way I could perform. Um, and since then, you know, what I do know is, is that. I, it's it's a, this physiological response that we start, to be, we start to have control over. We slow down our breathing we become very conscious of being calm, of, you know, deep, slow breaths, trying to drop the heart rate, it starts to affect the way our brains are interpreting the situation, you know, immediately with that threat and that reaction, the the shallow breathing and the shakiness and needing to run is where we go. But if we're starting to communicate with our body, we don't need to run by slowing down our breath, then, you know, it starts to change us. So
0: it's neat that you had this this earlier realization between the, the relationship between your physiology and your comfort zone or your wall. Um, by wall, I mean this. So there there's a I don't know what he is. Uh, Michael Singer, who's a philosopher, computer engineer type, uh, was a guy. He's like president of WebMD for a while. Um,
1: the untethered soul.
0: Right, but he writes this book called The Untethered Soul. You know, it says we all have a wall, right? And he means some sort of apparatus in our mind, something that we uh, that stops us from doing the thing that we want to do, or the or the thing that we think that we we want to do. Um, and without explaining it very well, he says, if you don't think that you have a wall, just try walking toward it, mm-hmm. and then you will see how real that thing seems to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially, you know, so I, you know, here are some examples of the types of things. Uh, You're a young person and you are attracted to uh, the person who you think is the most attractive person in the world. And it's easy to, I mean, you talk to people all the time. Uh, It's easy to talk to people. And yet talking to this person who you think is so beautiful seems like the most impossible thing in the world. Mm -hmm. He says, if you really want to understand your wall, just walk toward that thing. You will see how much you will clam up. You won't do it. For some people, it's talking to their boss, Mm -hmm. right? Talking to their boss about something or talking to a colleague. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not always talking. Sometimes it's getting up on stage like what you were talking about Mm -hmm. or recording your first video or whatever it is. Uh, But the thing that stops you is is an apparatus in your mind. And it's not a real... There's nothing stopping you from talking to that girl or that boy or your boss or your whatever, right? Uh, Or confronting a bully. There's nothing physical that's stopping you. Uh, There's a wall, there's a mental block in your head. um, And that's, that's the thing that stops you. And we all have our walls, right? Even when you break through walls, you have more walls. One of the things that I've noted is that, you know, even with that metaphor of a wall, understanding that, that you can come right up to the edge of your wall. Like you can stare at it. You can get like your nose can be like just about to touch it. You're looking at your boss in the face. You're contemplating what you will say to your boss um, or the bully or whatever. Um, And once you start staring it in the face, all you have to do really is just take like one step in that direction. Mm -hmm. And then you're on the other side of it. Right. Um, Which might be hard to do in that moment. But if you do it in those two steps, walking up to the wall first and then taking the step. It's different than you know trying to get a running, trying to get a running start. I'm gonna have it out with my boss today, yeah. and then you check it out before it happens. Uh, if you break those down into two parts, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go look at my boss, stand you know two mm-hmm. feet away, and then I'm gonna open my mouth and then I'm gonna say this. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is you know I want to bring the physiology back into it. Um, it's important if you control your physiology. So Amy Kari, she has her. I mean, it's been panned a little bit at the, at the reproducibility level. Um, and so we don't know how effective it is. But anecdotally, Amy Cuddy is a woman who is, I think she's a performance coach or performance psychologist or something. She has a TED Talk, which is how she's famous. She has a book that's called Fascinate, I think it's called. Um, and she is sort of like, she's, she's known for having these power poses. Mm-hmm. So what she noticed was that, you know, people who do victory type, um, you know, gestures all throughout the world, across cultures, uh, those victory gestures tend to look the same. It's two hands, two fists raised in the air, sort of in a Y, uh, making your body into a Y shape. Um, And her argument is that it's one of these things, by changing your physiology in this way, you can drop your cortisol levels and feel more empowered and feel more strengthened. Um, again, I, I don't know where the state of that research is today, but anecdotally I've done Amy Cuddy's power poses
1: too.
0: and I feel different. Same. Uh, so yeah. So, I mean, there's, there, you, you have a, two more data points, Amy Cuddy, if you're out there, if you're listening and you want to include us with two more data, Amy, give me a call. Um, but now oh, we got that. Right. Huh? Now yeah, so, you know, um no, I have w- like scary
1: things I've done the power pose and I have felt more powerful. But go ahead. And, yeah,
0: and it seems like you stumbled upon this even as as a youngster mm-hmm. by controlling your physiology mm-hmm. so that, you know, you're breathing. Um Amy Cuddy has a, an interesting one. She says if you just put a a teeth in your pencil, a it'll pencil in your teeth. Yeah.
1: Or you could put your teeth in. Yeah, your I mean pencil. both,
0: right? Put sure, a pencil yeah, in your teeth.
1: And bite on it. And okay. bite
0: on it hard enough that you put your teeth in the pencil. Now, if you put a pencil in your teeth, uh, it uses your smile muscles, and then you, you feel like the feelings of a smile, and then you feel better like almost instantly.
1: Well, you were just telling me about this one thing where you open your eyes wide yeah. and gasp uh, in.
0: Vanessa Vanessa. Um, what's her name? Vanessa Van. Donald. Uh, there's a lady named Vanessa that I know let's call her miss Vanessa um so,
1: you don't know her though do you no she yeah. ri- she
0: writes a book called captivate it's um, Vanessa van something um but uh you know she says that if you if you open your eyes wide and you take a a, a quick deep breath in right that you'll feel the feeling of surprise uh which is kind of neat I mean anybody out there you can do it right now in this moment um it's 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 a crazy connection between your physiology and what's happening emotionally. And you did this, um, you know, by controlling your breathing, yeah. even as a youngster. Uh, and that's one that that's one way to sort of use your use your physiology mm-hmm. to push past your mental comfort zone. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's it's that connection uh, around what our body is doing and it being. <laughs> um Perhaps sometimes an opposition to what we're thinking, um, that really should be considered because you know, I, I think oftentimes people will I, I know in therapy people will I think I've already described this, but they're so confused as to um the process of understanding um what they you know could put into effect that would not be scary, like talking to that boss or you know, going to sit in the chair next to the person that you like. Um, and knowing that the rational thought is nothing bad is going to happen to me. But as you said, getting up to that wall and saying that's impossible to do. And a lot of that is about the physiology, it's the fight or flight response. And to know that there are, t- are ways that we can actually engage our body that can calm it down and not that that then makes you like you know a superhero and then you just fly to the chair but to know that your body is activated and it's doing a particular thing i have a client too that would just get so frustrated like i know this i uh, why why am i still acting this you know why am i still feeling all these feelings right because we talk about it, but your body still believes this your body's holding on to that fear so really we have to address slowing down your breathing you know calming yourself down. Sit down on the couch. Take a minute. You know, just breathe and relax. Deep you know, breath in, deep breath out, and pay attention to not just your thoughts, but all the things that are getting going in your body. And then you maybe can go face it.
0: Yeah, that that's critical. I mean something the way that you put it made me think about the relationship between, you know, willing You know taking your will willing the apparatus of your body to break through uh the comfort zones of your mind there's a corollary where you can will the apparatus of your mind Mm -hmm. to break through
1: um Mm -hmm.
0: to break through the comfort zone of your body Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a completely different process Mm -hmm. Uh, one shifts you into a new mental paradigm so if you're using your body let's see controlling your breathing that kind of thing um, to break through to a new mental paradigm, then I think there's a way. So, let, let me say a little bit about what I think the difference between um, the body's mm-hmm. comfort zone is versus like the, the mental. The, yeah, right. uh, no, the, the mental versus like the, the, mm-hmm. your body's comfort zone. Uh, so, your mind ha- has a comfort zone, which I think is, is the comfort zone that everyone understands, right? I'm afraid to do this, I don't want to do it. Uh, fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of being shunned from the community, um, fear of not having enough. All of those types of things um, sort of stand on the other side of why we won't do a thing. Right? This is all mental comfort zone things. Physical comfort zones or like your body's comfort zone is different. You, I, I think you have to think about it in evolutionary terms. There's some things that your body does not want to do. So, you know, runners out there will understand or people who spend like crazy amount of time in the gym and like you, you just do that. That one extra set, and do you, you do one more, and then you do one more, or like you know, however, I'm not a gym person, but however it is, gym people sort of mm-hmm. conceptualize mm-hmm. that thing. When you think you have no more to give, but you give more anyway, right. um, that's a different. That's pushing past your body's comfort zone. Um, and you know, Wim Hof is one of these crazy famous examples. Uh, Wim Hof is a guy. I think he's Swedish or something like that. Um, he's a little nuts, um, but what he's been able to accomplish is crazy. So, you know, I, l- let me just spell it so anybody can Google it and look for themselves. Yeah, it's a weird it's name. W-I-M-H-O-F, I think he's Swedish, Wim Hof. And this is a guy who spends time in the ice water as a means of sort of challenging the limits of his body. Mm-hmm. And then the types of things that he's been able to, to accomplish because of that is really, I mean, it's it's mind boggling. Uh, I suggest anybody just see for yourself, watch a video of Wim Hof, um, because it's crazy, Uh, but then you also have people like David Goggins who is an ultramarathoner but really any ultramarathoner David Goggins just gets to tell his story um, because we like that kind of story he's like a sort of uh, not quite rags to riches but like rags to hero story and I I think we like that type of story, but any ultramarathoner will know that there's a point where you hit in your, in your run or same with Wim Hof or people who have a restrictive, uh, like they're fasting um, or you're just doing something for a long enough time that's very uncomfortable for your body where your body starts to reject this activity. Your body's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on, on the mental comfort zone is like, I'm afraid. But the physical comfort zone, you know, when you hit mile, you know, 14 or something like that and everything in your body it was like we're not doing this anymore you should stop Mm -hmm. but then you use your the will I don't know just like the pure force of will to this entire dialogue that starts to happen as you approach that point right and for me the dialogue goes something like um, uh, you can like I, I start first I start cheering myself on you can do it you just one more you know two more steps or whatever but at some point it gets hard enough where you start making deals with yourself, right? You can quit now. No one's going to judge you. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember the first seven miles that, that the first time I'd ever run seven miles, and I thought that I was a parrot, I'd run like five miles and six miles. um, But the first time I'd run seven miles, when I got to that five and a half mile point, you know, when it was six miles, I was like half a mile more, I'm good. But now I'm like five and a half miles in, and I got a, a mile and a half left. And mentally, I I just wasn't prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, going from five and a half to six was br- brutal. Like that at that that half mile. But then, I, you know, I'm six miles in. I still have another mile left. Right. And the mental, you know, so I'm making deals with myself. All I have to do is get to the, the end of that, to where that tree is. Mm-hmm. Right? And getting to that tree was hard. Mm-hmm. And then once I get to this next tree, it's like, if I can make it to the end of that car... I'll, I'll give up. Make it to the end of the car and, and then you make a deal. How much more? But they're not like, I'm going to, You know, at no point could I say, I'm just going to finish this last mile. It was all step by step. Right. I could only do the two steps in front of me. Um, this is the most that I could do. Uh, but the internal dialogue at that point, you know, I'm past cheering myself. At one point I said to myself, um, and this was sort of important for me as a breakthrough, I said to myself that um, the person that you are now has never done this. Mm -hmm. And in order to run these seven miles, you have to become someone that you've never been before. Mm. And in this process, you are making the person. You are making the person who can run seven miles, which is someone who who isn't the person now. Uh. Uh, And so part of it felt like I was trying to, obviously I was trying to get to the end, but I was also trying to create the type of person who who could do that. And, you know, in that internal dialogue, uh, one, it gets it gets odd. So if you hit that point, I don't know if it's in the gym or it's in the cold water, whether you're in a sweat lodge or whatever. But by the time you start pushing your physical body, right, it it past what it wants to do. It gets spiritual real quickly. Like, like, the outside world fades away. I can still see people, but it's, like, not about them anymore. Mm-hmm. The most beautiful person can go by or the, the most amazing car. Or, you know, you watch two dogs playing, like, you know, poker. And, like, you don't even care. It's like, there are some dogs playing poker. But, you, you like, you're not focused on the outside right. world anymore. It just becomes this oddly internally, you know, internally referential. Not not ego self-referential, but, like, this odd sort of internally, you know, self-referential state that is i don't know if i can describe it as anything other than it's like quasi-spiritual um but but when when you start pushing you know when you get to your your body's comfort zone and then you're able to push past that then some new then you enter into a new paradigm like your reality changes a little bit what you think is possible changes uh, motivational speakers love to tell this one I- example of, uh, what's the guy's Roger Bannister. Mm-hmm. Uh, there used to be a belief out uh, it's so used, I hate bringing it up, but it's relevant. Uh, it, it, people used to believe that no one could run a mile under four minutes, right? It was known that it was like a human impossibility. The human body could not run mm-hmm. a four minute mile. Roger Bannister does it and breaks, like, the world record, but he also breaks people's beliefs about what's possible. Mm -hmm. After Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute mile, the next person does it, like, in less than a year. Wow. Right? And then you have all these people who just start doing it over and over and over again because the world's belief about what's possible changes. There's a paradigm shift. And then you get people who are doing a a mile in, like, less than, than, uh, you know, like a minute, uh, um, I'm sorry, like three and a half minutes... Just it it changes the paradigm about what people think is possible, and that happens for yourself. Whatever you think is possible for yourself, that also changes when you are able to use your body Mm -hmm. to break through, um, to you know, to to sort of break through your body's comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the reason for that is the stuff that you were talking about in the beginning is you start rewiring all of that, all of the biochemistry of, uh, you know, and like gene regulation. But um, mm-hmm. you start rewiring the biochemistry of how your body responds to uh, the the sort of biochemical learn emotions of whatever it is that you, I mean, you call it trauma or w- whatever mm-hmm. that, that learn experience is that's stored uh, on the receptor sites of, of your cells. That starts to change when you push your body past that, that point.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, with a little... Do nod to the body, respect for the body, um you know, this kind of uh Jeanette, our internal coding for trauma is a way for us to not repeat danger. you know our body's saying, you know that that really messed you up at one point don't don't do that um so it it does you know it serves a purpose, but as we you know you were mentioning before this very long long um evolutionary process you know we needed this in spades you know <laughs> way back like hunter gather probably even before that you know what danger lurked behind many corners or what we had to do you know we didn't we couldn't jump in our speeding car and speed off to safety you know we had to use our feet and run to safety or find some you know some other way to survive um so you know we come by this honestly and it makes sense why things are stored in a particular way but you know now we work because of you know the enlightenment we're working more towards this um kind of emotional safety you know we have a sense of um, kind of our, our higher self and so we're kind of looking to be safe in those ways often enough and you know, people talk about um, feeling unsafe and they'll they'll use those words around an emotional state mm-hmm. you know I feel feel felt dangerous for me to go in there because somebody you know didn't like me or whatever which is not real physical um, danger but it is you know feels emotionally dangerous um And so, you know, not to get lost in that, but to, to, again, to consider this interplay, you know, emotion, body... Um, Knowing that it's served a good purpose, but to override it is important because we don't need to be this hypervigilant anymore. Um, And to note that, you know, I'm being, you know, I'm kind of in this state of, you know, this feeling this dangerous. But the truth is, I'm not in that kind of danger anymore. I'm actually much safer than my body and my mind is telling me.
0: Yeah, we're not on on the evolutionary savanna anymore. And you know, I mean, there, there are real dangers that are out there. I there there's a lord knows there's um there's a price to pay for having no sense of. So I mean, there's a way to be too trusting. Sure. Uh I didn't read that Malcolm Gladwell book just cuz I'm I'm a little over Malcolm Gladwell. Hmm. Uh but he has a book about trusting or or mm-hmm. something like that. But it reminds me of, there was a couple, I think they were bicycling through Europe.
1: Oh, I know the story. Um
0: and or maybe it was through like Central Asia, yeah, was, Tajikistan, yeah, Kazakhstan, yes. um, Turkmenistan, they something like into that. They got
1: the right? wrong territory, yeah.
0: Uh, and you know, I think they brought their their American, probably suburban, because city people don't quite work this way. Uh, I think they brought their American, very likely suburban, trust of everybody is on our side.
1: Or if you know, I think what I heard. The news said something like, you know, if if we're just kind to people, they'll we'll appeal to their sense of humanity in each of us. Yeah.
0: Wow, what a mistake.
1: Yeah. Like, D- what, did it didn't end well.
0: What a mistake.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um yeah, they're, they're somewhere in Central Asia and um you know, long story short, their bodies are found. Um and like they're not even in good condition. Um and sometimes like there's you gotta know who to tr- you have to know who to trust.
1: Yeah, yes, um, absolutely. I mean, we're not saying don't pay attention to any warning signs.
0: Right? N- yeah, you know what I mean. Right. Like, know who to trust. I would say if it's a complete stranger, start with a little skepticism. Um, that that's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. I think I think that. You know what? Hey, here's what I think. So this is going. This is a tangent.
1: Yeah, I can feel it.
0: This is a tangent. <laughs> There are these... Uh, so it seems like uh, the non-Africans left Africa about 70,000 years ago. Right? About 70,000 years ago, the non-Africans leave Africa.
1: Okay.
0: Every, like, basically, the Africans I see, I see. and then everyone else. Yeah. The people who left this land bridge, uh, seemingly a land bridge between, let's say, the Horn of Africa and Yemen um I hope your geography is good. Get your map out if it ain't. Um that one of the things that they found on, on both sides of the Red Sea, uh and the Babel Mandeb, uh, oh It is right there. Right? that's the Babel Mandeb, it's the Red Sea, and then you have the Persian Gulf.
1: Yeah.
0: Get your maps out. Um so along the bab Mendeb, and it's actually relevant to this because this is where the this is where the archaeology is uh, on both sides uh, of uh, the Horn of Africa, and then on on the Yemen side, what you find is these hand tools, these hand tools made out of rocks that humans were making, I guess, seventy thousand years ago. Uh, and one of the, the the neat things about them, uh, so one, they all seem like they're flaked in the same way; they're trying to make these rock flakes. But then they find this other Uh, this other uh, I don't know object um, that seems like it doesn't have any real purpose as a tool it's small and round and it has a hole in it Uh, and the hole makes it look so the archaeologist said what's the purpose of this Mm -hmm. and you have like these expert you know archaeologists who all they do is like like there's one guy all he does is recreate hand tools that's his job he recreates hand tools with the same kinds of rocks trying to understand what early humans were thinking I was like there are people in the world who get their PhD in rock breaking. But, um, you know, so you have these experts who can't figure out what this this little circular rock with a hole in it. And then someone, um, you know, someone hypothesizes that maybe it's a symbol. Hmm. Like maybe it's something that people can wear around their neck
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, um, and symbolize the other people who have the same little circle with a hole in it that uh, that they are trustworthy that they are that they can be trusted hmm. and um you know given people's relationship with symbols human beings their relationship with symbols some people even hypothesized that the reason that humans were able to uh out compete homo sapiens Neanderthals the neanderthal in europe was because humans could spread more information more quickly uh, the Neanderthals. So we, we see sometimes, this is a complete tangent. I hope you all go for this, right? Uh, we see. I'm going to have uh, to
1: put a little subtitle in our podcast. Great. <laughs> right.
0: uh, we see with Neanderthals that uh, every now and then there'd be a Neanderthal encampment that they would have some kind of technological breakthrough. Okay. And that technological breakthrough would essentially die in that small encampment. And what they didn't do was spread information. But what humans did was anytime there was a human, like, sort of. You know, innovation that that innovation would spread along, let's say, the, like all of the tribes, and eventually it would leap from tribe to tribe to tribe to tribe, uh, and go from, let's say, like you know, Arabia or Turkey, all the way up to Europe over, you know, hundreds of years maybe. Uh, but that information would get spread, and it's hypothesized that that you know our ability to use symbols as a way of signaling trust is crucial to that um if you wear a if you wear a crucifix mm-hmm. um in northern ireland it makes you st- apparently it makes you stand out immediately mm-hmm. northern ireland mostly protestant oh. crucifix is so you know my entire life i've never paid a de- you know attention to a crucifix versus a cross i use the terms literally interchangeably mm-hmm. but like in in northern ireland you, you'll get in trouble for the one mm-hmm. uh and the same is true in the republic of ireland uh, people will, will sniff you as an outsider if you have a cross around your neck and there's no dead Jesus on the on the cross, right?
1: Yeah, well, I grew up in a Catholic town as a Protestant, so this demarcation was very, very familiar to me. Right. <laughs> Crucifix was Catholic. The empty cross was uh, Protestant. So I knew that, Raphael. But,
0: that, but that's crazy to yeah. me. But that's how people work, though, right? Yeah. It's like very small signaling of who to... So know who to trust. If you find yourself... With your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and you are in Turkmenistan on bikes, or Tajikistan, or whatever it is, Kyrgyzstan, um, or anywhere else, and you're looking around, and the symbol around your neck doesn't match the symbol around their neck,
1: mm-hmm.
0: all I'm saying is be a could little be bit. It could be your neck. It could be your neck,
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, well, good. I mean, that, I was worried about the tangent, but you actually, you tied it back in, so. About but trust. Yeah, about trust and you started you came back to the couple and everything. So good job. You you took us full circle.
0: I, I like to you yeah.
1: know No you did it, you did it. Um, so back to the body and the mind. What what do we t- what do we what do we want to leave people with? What what do we t- what
0: do we i I, mean, I think my for me it's simple, right? Use your use your physiology. To break through your mental comfort zone blocks right um so that you can live in a, a you know a new sort of kind of paradigm about what's available to you
1: uh,
0: but I think even more importantly, you can use your mind to break through your body's comfort zone, and that puts you i mean that that will that will change your entire concept of reality right
1: um and that's not an exaggeration
0: no 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 that's not an exaggeration
1: you mean that literally you could change your entire concept
0: it will change your entire concept of reality uh it'll change your confidence it will change what you think is available to you what's possible for you it'll change how you see other people uh it'll change um uh, yeah i'm not exaggerating uh maybe the the the, the most well-worn path to this is running a marathon Mm -hmm. so i would say you know that if you could run a marathon by yourself right or just 26 miles by yourself uh and then maybe like you prepare to run 26 miles by yourself um and then you end up running 27 just because Mm-hmm. Like, nobody's looking, it's not about the world, it's not mm-hmm. about some trophy or medal around your neck. right? If you just push your body, whatever, it doesn't even have to be, you know, like for me my first breakthrough was seven,